New Testament book of Ephesians. It's page 827 in our church Bibles. If that would be of help to you. Ephesians chapter 1. We've already heard from verses 3 through 8, so we're going to pick up reading in verse 9. Just a moment. While the kids are exiting, let me just say thank you. Um, I want to let you know, as most of you know, my mother passed away a couple of weeks ago. The funeral was um, a week from 10 days ago, Thursday of a couple of weeks ago, um, and all your prayers were answered. I, grace was being poured out in very clear, undeserved measure. And so it was exceptional of God to do what he did. And so thank you for your prayers. And I'm thinking my January letter, I'm going to give you bits and pieces of what took place. And so if you have questions, I'll be happy to try to answer them now. But also in my letter, I'll give you a little insight of what happened over the week that we were there. So it was all good and it was all God. And very humbled and very thankful for those things. So, Okay, let's read the Bible. Verse 9. And he... God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, verse 15, this is where our interest lies this morning. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints... I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Isn't that beautiful? And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. Let's pray together, please, as we seek help to understand these verses this morning. Father, as we come to your word, please help us by your spirit to understand it, to believe it, to pay attention to it, and if we need to, repent in light of it. And then, Father, help us to cherish and enjoy what is being said here, and to enjoy what God will give here. And we ask this always, God, for Jesus' sake. 
Amen. Well, some of you know we're just a few weeks from beginning um, our verse-by-verse study in the gospel, or excuse me, the book of Romans. I've been trying to do my preliminary work, and in that, chapter 8, verse 26 of Romans, Paul writes how the Holy Spirit helps the Christian in their weakness. And what is really telling about this is that when Paul uses that word weakness, he uses it in the singular. In other words, he does not say weaknesses as if we were weak, but not in everything, but only some things. If you like having only like a limited form of weakness, so I'm weak at X, I admit that, but I'm strong in Y. No, he says rather that weakness is a comprehensive description of our human condition. So we are perishable. We, we face a multitudes of afflictions in our life. We fail. And we are sinfully bent from the heart towards pride, towards self-righteousness, fear of men and women with a multitude of desires and a multitude of fears which visit us regularly. And to proclaim this weakness is countercultural to a people who want to say either by lip or by life, we are strong. I can do it. In fact, I'm doing it now. Can't you see? Yet, we are, says Paul, says God, fundamentally weak. Now, we may have props that we use to try and present strength. So, big boasts, big words, big bank, big purchases, big brains, big ego. But at some point, even if it's only at the judgment, the frailty of those things, their inability, their impotency will be felt and they will be known, which is why, now please pay attention to this, weakness recognized is the usual door into all the ways God gives us his strength. I'm going to say it again. Weakness recognized is the usual door in which God gives us his strength. Let me give you a few examples. Psalm 40, David assesses himself like this. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. Job, Paul, Isaiah will all say, I am of but small account, but God helps me. Daniel, O king, I can't help you at all with that dream stuff, but the God I serve can. And this is exactly where the mercies of God meet us, not in our supposed strength, but in the comprehensive condition of our weakness. So please bear with me. The commercialization of Christianity, we'll call it a pseudo-Christianity, which simply uses God as a means to our own end. In other words, what do you think you need? God will give it to you. That plays on the fact that we are weak, and they play on it with a precision and a success rate that I kind of find enviable. So they name what you're weak in. That's pretty easy. They tell you, you don't have to be weak, and you shouldn't be in that pickle. Something's missing. They go on. They say the reason why you're in that little pickle of weakness, whether it be relational weakness or moral weakness or spiritual weakness or financial weakness or intellectual weakness, it must certainly be be because you're missing something. You're not doing something. You haven't taken these steps. You haven't applied these techniques. And instead of taking you right to the cross and to Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.24, the power and the wisdom of God, that's who Jesus is, Instead of taking you there or to say Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and following to the God who has blessed us already day one with every spiritual blessing in Christ, they take you to the product that they're going to peddle. And they present things from a purely human 
deceptive. Let me just give you one example. This is Colossians 2.8 because Paul warns the church, see to it that no one takes you captive through empty and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition, the things of time, and the basic principles of this world, the things of time, rather than on Christ. If you like, human wisdom dated only for the now. So, okay, less is always bad and more is always good. If bad comes, what did you do wrong? If good comes, what are you doing right? So you're living more by instinct. It's almost animalistic, a robotic life, uh, drinking from the wrong well. Because on one level, when something goes wrong in our life, and we immediately go to what did we do wrong to deserve it, this means that we actually think we are worthy of the goodness received before that little pickle came into our life. Therein denying the fact that every good thing that comes to us at its core is an undeserved mercy. It is grace. Denying the fact that the chief work of the Holy Spirit is to keep our eyes on Christ, away from ourselves, while the devil loves for us to evaluate ourselves and keep our eyes on ourselves. Denying the fact that the most complete human who ever walked this earth, Jesus Christ, the God-man, right smack in the middle of God's will always, he was, remember the Christmas song, he was no stranger to our weakness. He was a man of sorrow, suffering, familiar with pain. A man, Isaiah writes, a man who was perceived uh, uh, as of low account, no value, weak. But you see, in the commercialization framework, God becomes simply a means to our own end. He's a commodity to get us what we want. He's a product. He's a pill. Take it twice a day. Watch out world. No, no God to simply get something from God. Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Patton. Beautiful book. It's about an Anglican pastor named Misamangu. He lived in the apartheid era in South Africa. And in the book, he's uncommonly generous to a grieving pastor, a white man named Stephen. Stephen's going through all kinds of heck in his life. Stephen tells the pastor, pastor in a rush of tears just how much he appreciated his generosity and his care. And this is how Miss Amangu responds. I am a selfish, sinful, weak man, but God has put his hand on me. That is all. God has put his hand on me. That is all. So as you think about this, this is life at a much more profound and honest level. There's no superficialities here. There's no kind of like superstitious religious protectionism here. Every good thing that comes to us is an undeserved mercy. So why do I begin this way? Because prayer in Christ's name is one of the chief ways we express our absolute weakness and our absolute dependence on God. And God's purpose for every age is that we might depend on Him entirely for everything at all times. It's written to the very heart of the Bible. It's written to the very nature of God Himself. God never wants His children to say, I got this. However, God does want us to say in Christ, come to me all you who are weary. Right? Context of Jesus' words. Weary of dead, lifeless, self-serving, empty religion. If you're weary of that, you come to me and I'll give you rest. And this is the translation from the message. You will learn the unforced rhythms of my grace. 
See, in this prayer, God is, Paul is asking God to do things because he has to, because we can't do this for ourselves. Knowing God will be a work of God. We will not be able to simply study our way into this. Get that in your head. We will not be able to simply study our way into this. This whole prayer is predicated on the fact that we are weak. So as you're sitting there, let all your failures, let all your disappointments, all your weaknesses drive you like a nail into the love and the power of God in Christ in this prayer. It's all up to you, God. Now, are you happy about that? Because I'm happy about that. Because weakness recognized, I know, is the usual door into all the ways God gives us his strength. And I suppose one reason why a person may not be happy about this If they like the type of Christianity which makes one feel better, feel smarter, feel much more superior, and much more moral than the rest of us, that, says C.S. Lewis, you can be sure of, is from the devil. Because you don't need grace. Therefore, hear what Paul is saying for all the Christians in Ephesus. And so for all Christians in all time, they want to know, he prays that they would know God in all his greatness and know God in all his fullness. They are weak. They have to throw the weight of their entire life on God. They, Paul prays they would lean hard on this God that he prays they know better. Experiential knowledge of God in a way that only weak, needy people would be happy about and be excited about. So it's no wonder if your Bible's open, verse 15, that Paul begins this prayer with, with thanksgiving. You see it there? Now let's play a game, shall we? It's a word association game. Don't speak out loud. When I say the word church, what is it that immediately jumps into your head? What is it? Don't, don't say it out loud. Here we go. Ready? Church. Okay, let's sharpen it a bit. West Cohasset Chapel. Okay, what comes into your mind? Does it do anything to you, for you? What does it say about you, what you're thinking about the church? Hold your thought. Because here in chapter 1, Paul is reflecting on his congregation, and his reflection leads immediately to thanksgiving and then petition. We're going to cover mostly thanksgiving this morning and one verse of petition and the rest, Lord willing, uh, next week. And when it comes to thanksgiving, it's just, you see it there, it's just like he just can't help it. Because in this congregation, he sees rightly what God has done and what God is doing. That behind the backdrop of history, his spiritual eyes are open. He sees them as they are in Christ, and he sees things as they really are. So he's not just simply seeing them, but he's seeing them as they are in Christ. Now, do you understand the difference? Namely, you see there in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, when you read that, Paul is like, don't be so blind, don't be so myopic, narrow-minded. Put on your Jesus glasses and see reality. This is full reality. Before time, in time, after time. See what you have already and what you are promised and see what you are in Christ. And understand that the fact that you're here today in Christ is because God has been at work since before the beginning of time on your behalf. That is profound. That's why you're here in Christ. That's what I, Paul, see. And that's why Thanksgiving is so easy to give. Verse 15, for this reason, verses 3 to 14, ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks to you. No, what does it say? 
for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is Paul's reaction as he thinks about the congregation in Ephesus. He thinks about what God has done, and he sees the congregation through that lens. Now, are you with me? He's thanking God for their faith in Christ, and he's thanking God for their love for all the saints. He's thanking God for them. And why shouldn't he thank God? If your Bible's open, verse 4, he would recall they've been chosen before the foundation of the world. It's the imagery that Isaiah uses as, as God carved your name into his hand. Verse 7, Paul would have looked around the church and said, God has made these people his children by sending his son to die that we would be forgiven. This is no small thing. Verse 7, blood had to be shed. In him, we have redemption. That's back to the way it was supposed to be even better. That's redemption through his blood. And then going on, Paul would have thanked God looking at the church saying, he has made all these different people despite all the immense barriers, the race, the faith, the social class, the cultural barriers, the intellectual, wealth, age, all things that divide our culture. God has made us a family, verse 13. And you were also included in Christ when you heard and believed the gospel. Furthermore, as if he hasn't done enough, he sent his Holy Spirit, verse 13, to keep us all the way to the new creation. Having believed, you were marked, Christian, in Christ with the seal promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, guaranteeing our inheritance. So I know that if Paul would come in here today, he would fall on his knees and he would thank God. Thank God. And he would say, God, look what you've done. God did this. This is the evidence of his plan before time, before space, and before anything. Thank you, God, for these people. You've been so merciful. Thank you, God, that you have given every genuine Christian every spiritual blessing in Christ, which finds its expression because, like, is that just hoo-ha talk? No, it finds its expression, verse 15b, in our love for each other. Right? The love because we enjoy the satisfaction that we have in Christ. We, we are well. We are well with God because of the cross which oozes out in love for all the saints, which is what we are made if we're Christian. If we channel our love through our works, if we channel our love for each other through grace. So there's a story that I told when we worked through Colossians about William Randolph. Very wealthy man. He was reading his art periodical, and there was this rare painting in the, in the periodical. He's like, I want that painting. Calls up his agent. He tells her, find this painting. Purchase this painting. I don't care what it costs. I want it. She looks, and she looks, and she looks. Finally, after many months, she returns to Mr. Randolph and tells him, you already own the painting. <laughs> that, you see, that's the devilish quest for something more, which is already theirs in Christ, right? Many believers get entangled with something special. I want something more than just ordinary Christianity. It's so divisive, and it's so devilish. They speak of getting more of Christ as if Christ didn't give them all of them. More, more, more power, more blessing, a higher life, as if God's resources were passed out like a pharmaceutical prescription. And unlocked only by some type of spiritual exercise, only the serious initiated few can know. Loved ones, to say we want more of Jesus is to simply imply we didn't get all of Jesus at our conversion. So he held back a few things in reserve to be passed out 
for those special folks who meet certain requirements, do certain things, make certain sacrifices. A gospel plus religion, which is no gospel at all. There was a little boy in our church in, in Tennessee, the church that we served at, rather, in Tennessee, and he would always have this phrase, I won't mow. So you'd feed him something, I won't mow. I won't mow. All the food is right in his... You see how deceptive it can be. So this could be like a merit-based system of our world, right? That's how the world works. You do and then we will do. That can infect the church at any moment. Earn it to have it, which depends on human wisdom and not in Christ. You're nice, I'll be nice. You're bad, I'll be bad. Loved ones, nothing is missing in you in Christ. Colossians 1.10, you have his fullness. So this week I read where Walt Disney, year by year, as a Christmas gift, he would give his, his nanny, family nanny, stock in the Disney Corporation. So this dear woman had no idea both intellectually and legally what she was given. In 1981, when she died, among all her possessions was this pile of Disney stocks. And when they found out the value of them, $7.6 million. She never knew it. She never enjoyed it. She only kept the papers. So when she would look at those papers, I imagine words like capital and register and annual general meeting and voting by proxy and redemption of stock dividends. And I imagine they meant very little to her. And every Christmas she'd walk away going, look, can you just give me a nice crisp $100 bill? That would be great. Or how about some free passes, you know, to, to the Magic Kingdom? That, that would be wonderful. And the reason why I say that, when you look at verses 3 through 14, don't be the kind of Christian who looks at these words, chosen, adoption, predestined, redemption, inheritance, glory, grace, salvation, blood, forgiveness, and say, you know, what a load of religious nonsense. How can that help me now? This is like algebra in middle school. How am I going to use it? Loved ones, in Christ, we who are children of God are we who are rich in Christ. So we may use like 20% of our capacities in our smartphones, but if we could use 100% in our work and maybe just in the dailiness of life, how much more productive we would be and we'd be much more useful to ourselves and probably to others. It's the same here. And we need, to, we need help, Paul says, to internalize this truth and frame it in our lives. Therefore, knowing this, Paul prays. You get that? He prays. He prays. I'm not stopped giving thanks to God for you. God did all this. I keep thanking God he did it. I keep thanking God for you. Now, I bet if we were honest, we would admit that sometimes it's kind of hard to be thankful. I mean, because of our depravity, when God gives us our daily bread or gives us some special treat, and like any good father, he would say, now, what should you say? You know, we might say, what took you so long? Or, you know, give me more. Or is this this? Is this it? Or I want more. Or what about tomorrow? Instead of, oh, God, thank you. This is so good. I don't deserve this. Can I tell you something goofy that just comes to mind? When we pray before we eat at night, when we actually eat together at night, I take too long. One, my wife's like, hurry up. But I just find myself moved by this moment. There's a plate of food there. God gave me today. And I want that to mean something. 
So when he says, here it is, and he says, what do you say, Joe? I want to say, oh, God, this is so good. I don't deserve this. Thank you for this meal. And, you know, it's very interesting to me that when I study Romans chapter 1, the mark of an unbeliever is that they will not give God thanks. And then as you move along in Romans, a mark of our spiritual blindness is we will not give God thanks, and we will not give God thanks for each other. For each other. And loved ones, I'm going to suggest to you that when we stop giving thanks, one, we'll forget the giver, God. Two, we'll forget the greatness of the gift, grace in Christ. Three, we will forget that those who don't share in this blessing and will become careless about them. As if it's unimportant that they should not also be caught up in this great purpose of God that we now enjoy by God's grace. So I have to ask you this question. Do you reflect on your brothers and sisters in a positive way here? And do you thank God for this miracle that we are here because it was planned by God before the beginning of time. It was made possible by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are kept. And we are going to heaven together. A guaranteed promise by His Spirit. And do we understand that the way we treat people actually reveals precisely our attitude towards God. So I want you to know that I've been praying this prayer for years for us, that we'll be able to internalize these truths, these graces, and I'd be so grateful that if you would pray the same for me. Internalize them. This is your identity. Verse 4, you are chosen. Verse 5, predestined. Verse 7, redeemed. Verse 7, forgiven. Verse 13, included in Christ. Verse 14, guaranteed heaven. That's thanksgiving. Second point, petition. We're just going to get through verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Right? So Paul prays for experiential spiritual enlightenment. So he's been telling them, you guys are sitting on a gold mine in Christ. And now he prays that they would know God better. That they would know that the Father who did all that Now, we know that the church in Ephesus, they face persecution. But we also know that they also face the common problems of life, like economic problems, social problems, relational, personal problems, and so on. They weren't immune to that. And yet, notice that when Paul prays for the church, he doesn't pray for the health, for their happiness, for their prosperity, nor their success. It's not in that prayer. It's understandable. Should we pray those things? Sure. But it's not in this prayer of this apostle. And as an apostle, he has authority over us here. He's an example to bow to, to embrace. So we should pay attention to the fact that he doesn't pray for easier circumstances. But he does pray, see this in your Bible, verse 17, that God would give them the spirit or a spirit outside power, from God, internalized in them, okay, outside power, whether it's the Holy Spirit or a spirit. Commentators differ. But the point is, outside power from God, internalized in them. Give them a spirit of wisdom. Sophie is the Greek word. Expertise, capacities. God give them capability. Listen to J.I. Packard knowing God when he gives a definition of this wisdom. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest good, 
tied together with the surest means of attaining it. It's the practical side of moral goodness. As such, it is found in its fullness only in God. And what he's saying is there's no higher wisdom than the knowledge of God. So Paul prays the very best thing for the congregation, the highest good. He prays for wisdom to know God better, capacities and expertise to know God better. Because to Paul, the gospel was so outstanding that it was impossible for people to see and internalize its capacities unless they were given spiritual power. So he prays. He prays. Knowing that the knowledge of God is life and eternal life itself. Now, who said that? That's Jesus in his high priestly prayer. John 17, now this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Christ whom you sent. And you see, that's why Ephesians 3-14 through is how God secured eternal life for his children. By his grace in Christ. He prays for wisdom and then he prays for revelation. Okay, we want to be careful here, right? This is an uncovering, a full disclosure of the very nature and character of God would be like unleashed in their minds. So this is not new things about God no one knows. But this is true stuff about God that they haven't been able to grasp and eternalize and apply in their life. So he prays that they would have a receptive bent they would be eager to enter into the truth about God as God has revealed himself. And as always, only God can give this. And so he prays that, verse 17, that they may know. Epigenosos is the Greek word. That they're going to be able to discern God. Now this will help you. This is the very opposite of 2 Timothy 3. Remember where Paul writes to the church and he writes of a kind of person who's always learning but never able to acknowledge, to experience, to apply the truth that they know. So they live in the classroom. It's the safest place for them, but they're unable to apply what they learn in any meaningful way in their life. All right, so let's just connect the dots here. The first reason why he prays this is that they want, he wants the very best thing for them. And the very best thing for them is to know God in light of all his great work in Christ before time, in real time, and what's coming after time. And he prays something like this. Now, I want you to think with me because this kind of prayer might seem, seem cruel to some people. Father, you know Jimmy is struggling with his illness. And you know how worried I am about Jill's job and marriage and how stressed that the Smiths are about selling their home. But I want to thank you that they're Christian believers. And I want to ask you to bless them and bless them, and they, that they would know every spiritual blessing in Christ that they have. And please open their eyes to grasp what you've done for them. Give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they might know you better, period, full stop. Right? Know you better. Know you, God. Not know you, God, then they'll get something from you, God. Not that way. Not yet. Just know God. Because only God can fill the God-sized hole in us. And until God has the proper place in a believer's life, we'll always complain that we're not loved well enough, that we're not respected well enough, 
or were supported well enough will be on a constant search, moaning, when it's all right there. Reed Hoffman. I found out about him yesterday. I was listening to this podcast, Masters of Scale. And Reed Hoffman is the founder of LinkedIn, which I used to call Linkopedia. I don't know why I did that. But anyway, it's LinkedIn. And he was talking about relationships and connecting with people. And he said this. There are four different mindsets, mindsets that we have about connecting with other people. The first two are like bottom level, total self-interest, right? Total self-interest. Just what can you do for me? The third is if I do this, then you're going to be obliged to do this for me. I mean, that's how that relationship works. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Remember Timothy Keller, we quoted, our obedience to God can't be like leverage to get God to do what we want him to do. God, I did this and I gave this, so you better do this. That's not a relationship. That's terrible. So he says the fourth level, which is the best level, is I just want to know you. I just want to know you. I don't care what you can do for me. I don't care what I can do for you. I just want to know you. Can I tell you something that happened to me over the week that I was gone? So I had this eight-hour watch over my dad. It was my turn to sit with my dad the whole day on Tuesday while the girls were running arrangements for the funeral. So from 10 o'clock until 8 o'clock, I sat with my dad. It was wonderful. Two conversations in my life I will never forget. May 2018, when my son was graduated, we sat down and we had a conversation that brought me to tears, and I will thank God for the rest of my life. That's the one conversation. The second conversation, I will thank God. It's beautiful. It's almost like bookends. May 2018, May 2019 was those two, three, four hours of just pure discussion with my dad. I didn't want anything from him, and, he, and I know he didn't want anything from me because he was like, it's just you, Joe. Getting to know you, right? Getting to know all about you. I'm not going to ask you for anything when we're done. I'm just going to know you. Paul is convinced this is the best way to pray. And someone would say, you know, what a pie in the sky kind of prayer. Uh, An invisible truth. The changing of invisible character. Expert knowledge of an invisible God. Don't you care about the illness? Don't you care about the stress? The selling of their homes? What about it, Paul? Of course he does. But this is what we need to know. You remember in 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul prayed to God three times about the thorn in his flesh? You remember it's like a spear. Everywhere he would go, this thorn in the flesh was there and Paul would pray, God, please take it away. God, please take it away. God, please take it away. God did not take it away. 2 Corinthians 12 was written in 56 AD. This passage that we just read, 61 AD. In my mind... I'm saying Paul has experiential knowledge of not asking God for stuff, but asking God to know him better. That one of the best things, I'm sure he would say this, that God ever did for me was to not answer my prayer about the thorn in the flesh and that he kept the thing there. Now, loved ones, do we know God this way? Can we agree, like Paul, that this is right? That's the first reason. Second reason, if people know God more fully, whatever, fully, no matter what issues come, they keep those issues in perspective and they understand them properly. It's perspective. Not everyone gets healed. Not everyone gets the great job, the great girl, the great guy, the great victory over sin. Not everyone has a great life. Not everyone has that, you know, life juice. 
I've been reading my Christian women's history book. There are women who live a glorious life, who love Jesus, and they die, and it's like a beautiful story out of Disney. Then there are women who are pounded for Jesus' sake, who go literally through hell on earth. Same women love, just different contexts. How are we to understand that? There's only one way. We better know the God of the Bible. We better know the God of the Bible. If not, we'll be jumping here and there. Give me, give me, give me. Verse 17, I keep asking God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would give us a spirit of wisdom. That's the highest good and revelation and uncovering of God like we've never understood before that we may know God better so that we can enter into the truth about God. And listen carefully, to expand the inner person. This is what Paul prays. Expand the inner person in their knowledge of you to frame their outer life. That's what he asks. Expand their inner person, God, so they could frame their outer life and they can enjoy the broad byproducts of such knowledge. Knowing God, that is the birthright of every Christian. This is in the knowledge of God as our Father. And he's not a textbook. He's not a subject. He's not a theory. He's not a pipe in our hand to bash other people. He's not someone who gives wrong-headed zeal to hurt other people. He's not a prop. He's not some like super spiritual key so that we can have personal success and just, you know, abound over every people. Knowledge of God because he's God. Our unchanging God. Our majestic God. Our only wise God, our loving God, our truthful God, our gracious God, the judging God, the wrath pouring out God, our good and gracious God, the adequacy of our God. Experiential knowledge of God, not in some mystical way, but in the commonness of life, in the dailiness of life, in the frailty, in the joy of life, in the pain of life, the frailty of life. God is the rock. The unchanging God. Terrible things may come to us. They may not come to us. Wonderful things may come to us. They may not come to us. Paul himself will know heavy affliction because of his apostolic calling. He was God's man doing God's work, God's way, and he was enduring sufferings that would break a thousand hearts. But he knew God, and he stayed. And he was praying to that end for the church. And so am I. And so am I. And the people who know their God, they can't sit on that knowledge. It's impossible. More to say, but we're going to zip it up now. God bless you and thank you for your attention. Let's pray. Keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. And Father, we thank you for the obedience of Jesus, which replaces our rebellion and our sin. And we pray, Father, that your rule and truth over our lives we would embrace and enjoy. And may your resurrection power be strongly at work in us, not in some religious, silly way, but in a family way, the family of God as a loving Father, and we would just drink up in great gulps your love in Christ for us. See everything as you would see it. 
so that we can do everything as you would do it and enjoy the fact that we are one in Christ. Please glorify yourself to that end this week. And we pray your blessing over your people as we move about today and in the coming days. For Jesus' sake, amen.